Hello, everyone, and welcome to Joe's Boys, a podcast for little women, little men, and everyone in between. I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. I'm the author of the novel Both Sides Now. I'm also a writer for publications like Pitchfork, Billboard, and Vanity Fair. And I'm here today with my very special guest, uh, Steph Redekop. Steph is a PhD candidate in the Department of English at the University of Toronto, and also my very best friend from way back. Steph, hello. How are you? Hello, I'm doing well. It's it's yes. so exciting to be here and to talk about um, this book we both love. Yes. Uh, do you want to tell the people a little bit about yourself? Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. As you mentioned just now, I'm a PhD candidate in English. I focus mostly on American literature of the 1960s. Um, but I think I first encountered Little Women via the Winona Ryder movie as a young kid. Yes. And so, of course, Joe has been sort of a um, an important force throughout my life uh, via that. What would you say, just expanding on that, what would you say is your relationship to Little Women? Like, have you ever studied it academically? I know you're focused on the 1960s, so like maybe an AU where Joe is a beatnik, but like, <laughs> have you ever, what's what's your relationship to little, little Women, like professionally, personally? Yeah, a beatnik Joe would be so fun to read. No, I guess it's mainly just a personal relationship. I've never sort of studied this in academic context because I've been 20th century focused and I've read some of um, Alcott's more like pulp novels um, uh, yes. in, in seminars, but <laughs> but never this one. Um, but yeah, I think my relationship to this started when my mom gave me a copy when I was really young and she was like, you're going to love Joe. You need to read this as um, <laughs> I think many um, bookish slash yes. tomboyish to use these sort of taglines that often get attached to her um, girls got growing up. Yeah, mainly that. And then of course, um, returned to it after many years between readings um, when, when the Gerwig movie came out, because um, I, that was the first movie that I went to go see in theaters like four or five times since I was really young, because yeah, yeah. it was just so moving to me and it, it brought all of those feelings back. Oh, I know. Yeah, it was, I mean, it changed the course of my life, the Gerwig movie, as you know. It was also, it was the last movie I saw in theaters before the pandemic as well. So it has that special distinction. The, the first movie I saw coming back was uh, a similar movie. It was uh, Fast and the Furious. Um, Excellent. <laughs> they're both about family. Yeah. And, uh, and which March sister are you? I mean, I'm definitely Joe, as I've sort of been rambling yes. on about before. Um, one of my friends, good friends theories is that everyone is actually a combo of two March sisters. Ooh, uh, yes. Okay. Am I a Joe Beth combo? Probably the two, the two sisters who actually want to sort of be grown women is are not, we're not yeah. me, sort of the, <laughs> the, the liking, the trappings of all of that. But, but I think sort of yes. the, the shyness of Beth, I mean, not always the gentleness, but but the shyness and the sure. and the conflict avoidance, perhaps. <laughs> I don't know. Have you seen the um, the Catherine Hepburn Little Women? I have not. It's so good. Um, <laughs> I've I've seen it twice now. I watched it first the first time with Frankie, and then I watched it with um, my parents because my dad my my dad had never read Little Women, and he wanted to know what it was all about. And I thought he'd be a little lost with the Gerwig movie. Kind of, it's kind of <laughs> like. My Little dad women. was too. He was confused by the timelines. Yeah. yeah. So I, I knew he would be confused by the timeline. So I was like, we're going to watch the most like back to basics, like George Cukor. Anyway, so in that 1933 version, Grandpa Lawrence encounters Beth and Amy looking at the dance and uh, he says hello to them and Beth like physically recoils. And then Amy goes up to the grandpa and goes, she has an infirmity she's shy and I'm like yes that's <laughs> well so in considering the which March story I also said that Lori is a March sister so Lori is on the table as well if you want to claim some like Lori rising for yourself um, see 
I loved Lori. Like he was my favorite character, yes. I think. I mean, besides Joe, which was the obvious. Mm-hmm. So maybe I would do that, but I feel like I do need to sort of, especially since I was no, such no. a shy child, um, yes. which is experienced as you say in social situations, like, yeah. Um, <laughs> oh man. So I think for childhood me, I'd have to claim that, but I do love Lori and I agree. He's March sister. W- one thing that really struck me this time is how much they're in this like deeply charged moral universe, like not, not just of, yes. the, of the 19th yeah. century, yeah. but of sort of the, the structural forms of the genre of novel that they're in. Um, yes, yes. And, and this sort of question of like, what does it mean to be good? Um, mm. Both like to be a good girl, but also to be a good person ethically and also to be good at what you do as they're all with Joe's writing and everything and the way these things come into conflict with one another. I think that is something that really resonated with me as sort of a, in a religious environment that was sure, also sure. deeply morally charged and sort of these structural mm-hmm. pressures and then the way you're sort of developing your own subjectivity in yeah. relation to that and coming in conflict with it anyway. So no, no, I think absolutely. that's what's, what's at the core of this for me. Um, yeah. Little women, would you say that that was presented to you? I, I'll say like, just for anyone listening, like Steph and I both grew up in like very kind of evangelical Christian ish environments. Yeah. yeah. Would you say that like little women was presented to you as like, this is an example of like morally correct reading for me, it was more like, Joe is an example of a role model that you might not okay. have elsewhere. <laughs> sure, um, sure. Yeah. Which was really nice. But I think mm-hmm. I think that that tension of the way she's sort of forging that and having space to be that in a way that's always sort of pressured as you get yes. from the very first chapter yeah, by yeah. like the expectation that you know you're 15 now and you can she can feel <laughs> the pressures coming of, yes, of what's yes. going to be expected of her. So I think that mm-hmm. the tensions were there. But I think it wasn't handed to me, for example, as a new Pilgrim's Progress. But yeah. I think I think that is like an interesting question to me mm-hmm. is like this chapter that we looked at, not to jump ahead too much, sure, sure. but, but mm-hmm. the way that they all sort of receive these books, right? And the way that Pilgrim's yes. Progress is sort of the model of what they're given. And um, mm-hmm. I was thinking about that question is like, is this a book that we read to make ourselves good in a way that mm-hmm. they're given these books and you they're reading right, it because right. they think it's for their own good. It's going to make them good in some way. And I think that like this book maybe does do that, but the way that that's happened is different than the sort of didactic, like moral education, even though that's in here, especially via, you know, Meg, the, the Legolas character. like The Legolas? Is, yeah, like how in The Lord of the Rings, how Legolas always like explicitly states the exposition okay. um, for, the, for the slower audience members. Like I love that. Like they okay. bring the food to the Hummels and Meg is like, this is what it means to love your neighbor more than yourself. And we're like, yep, right, right. sure is Meg. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because something very interesting that I learned about this chapter in my research was that this is the chapter that got little women banned from Sunday school libraries. Which is amazing because <laughs> because the whole thing is is a lesson in in yeah yes. like caring for your neighbors. I'm guessing it's the play. <laughs> yes. Let me read um I'll ask you to summarize in a second, but let me read this is a letter from Thomas Niles Jr. who was the publisher of Little Women. He sent this to Louisa May Alcott in October of 1868, um, so a few months after it was published. He wrote, Dear Miss Alcott, some very good and pious people object to the theatrical part of the Merry Christmas chapter, and in that object to its introduction into their Sunday school libraries. Could you substitute any other matter in lieu of it? And if you could, do you wish to do so? For my part, I think it is about the best part of the whole book. Why will people be so very good? Yours truly, T. Niles Jr. So yes, it was the play. 
That's so fun. <laughs> what happens in this chapter? Do you want to just break it down for us? Yeah, yeah. Yes. So I think at the beginning, they're all sort of like prepping for Christmas and they decide that they're yes. going to get gifts for Marmy, but they don't, they mm-hmm. can't afford to get gifts for one another, mm-hmm. but they're all sort of like longing for the things they wish they could buy for themselves. They go yes. to sleep with this mm-hmm. plan to get her these presents and they wake up in the morning and she's gotten mm-hmm. them all new books under their pillows. And so the first thing they do when they wake up is start reading their books right away. And then Marmy comes back home and they're about to have breakfast. And before they do, then Marmy tells them that she's just heard about the Hummel family nearby um, who are suffering from cold and from lack of food. Mm-hmm. And she asks the, the sisters, will you give them your breakfast as a Christmas present? And they immediately are enthusiastic about it. And so they proceed there and they're called angel children in German by the Hummels. <laughs> they make their way back home and then they uh, put on this play, I guess, for a bunch of girls from the neighborhood, it seems like. Importantly, I guess we're told again and again about Joe's boots and Joe getting yes. to play sort of the, the villainous character and the hero. The, <laughs> Joe gets to play the boy characters because there's mm-hmm. no gentleman allowed to come to their plays, even <laughs> in the audience. The chapter gets really interesting there because it sort of becomes mediated and it's like describing mm-hmm. the actual events of the play. So it's not like, and then Joe in character did this. It's like, and then Hugo does this um that being one of her characters Um, and it's very fun and then you get to sort of read through that when things go wrong like part of the stage collapses and so on and and Meg plays a witch which I'm guessing is part of the offensive Sunday school perhaps (laughs) anyway they wrap up the play and then it's dinner time and they've received this big dinner and where did it come from Um, was it from their mean old aunt March but no it was from the neighbor Mr. Lawrence um, because he had seen them bringing the food to the Hummels and he was moved by it and so he had sent his grandson over Mm-hmm. to bring some of the food and the chapter sort of ends there with Joe and the others deciding they want to get to know this grandson better and being yes. grateful for their dinner. Yes, it's the it is a it is an action packed chapter. It is a chapter that veers from the incredibly pious to the band from the Sunday School Library. There's a lot to get into here. So I wanted to get your take first things first about these books that they get when they wake up on Christmas morning. So uh, Louisa May Alcott never says what these books are like every every girl gets an identical book and Meg says oh we must uh love read and love and mind these books begin at once be faithful about it I shall keep my book on the table here and read a little every morning as soon as I wake for I know it will do me good and help me through the day so I mean what are the books do we have guesses we're not told the titles Mm-hmm. But we are told like the cover colors, Joe's mm-hmm. crimson colors. She knew it very well for it was that beautiful old story of the best life ever lived. And Joe felt that it was a true guidebook for any pilgrim going on a long journey. So I okay. wonder if it was not Pilgrim's Progress. But but as you say, even with Meg's quote, right, the idea that this mm-hmm. is going to be something edifying for them to, to come back to and, and keep reading. So you're thinking it's a Bible, a New Testament, maybe? Yeah. And I, I wondered if it was that or if it, mm-hmm. I mean, I thought it might even be the Bunyan thing, but it could be a Bible. Yeah. It just, it feels significant that she doesn't say exactly what it is. And that, yeah. that is something that also bumped with the, uh, the Christian union I know is that she, she never actually says explicitly what, you know, the, the book is. It could be like Guy Fieri's autobiography printed yeah. in four different colors. We don't know. <laughs> um, yeah. And I guess I sort mm-hmm. of, yeah, and we're told, yeah, they'd all been sort of inscribed by Marmy and they've got pictures inside. Um, mm-hmm. But but I think you're right. Like, I think the fact that it's presented as like a, a beautiful old story of the best life mm-hmm. ever lived, there is religious connotations to it. I guess, I guess it's interesting that it's emphasized as a story or a narrative rather than necessarily like a, like that's going to be the guide. That prevented me from reading it maybe more as a Bible, but. Okay, so we know. have no, no, we don't know exactly what the mysterious book is. We have, we have a few clues. 
It's the greatest life ever lived. It could certainly, uh, we know that they are big Pilgrim's Progress fans. We know that Joe is logging into AO3 to put her uh, Pilgrim's Progress fan fiction up there. But it's a mystery as to the books. They're just good moral guidance. But Alcott is a bit coy about what exactly they are. So then we proceed to another kind of moral instruction, which, as you said, is the, uh, the Hummel family, the German immigrants who call them angel children in German. Can I, sorry yes. if this is an aside. So they're called angel children. And obviously there's sort of interesting yes. context there in terms of the 19th century Yes, angel yes. in the house trope and little mm-hmm, ego mm-hmm. being this sort of angel child and so here it's sort of interesting like the the way that they're here being called angels sort of in a different house which is the Hummel's house and so mm-hmm. the way that domesticity is sort of refractured refractured here yes to be yes social um but, but speaking of sort yeah. of epithets um mm-hmm. Joe's called a, a Sancho what is yes. this well because I <laughs> is this a Don Quixote reference because I couldn't make sense of it mm-hmm. So this is coming from, I, I am so glad you mentioned this because one, you know, one of the goals of this podcast is to kind of get into the uh, gendered subtext of Little Women and really more broadly into kind of the theory, the possibility, the likelihood that uh, Louisa May Alcott uh, experienced gender dysphoria. And so what's interesting about Sancho, and this, this is coming from my annotated Little Women by uh, John Madison, shout out to you, John Madison. He writes, Sancho was a term commonly used by New England mothers to upgrade bad boys don't be a Sancho was like something you do to like a rowdy roughhousing boy. And so he writes the most obvious literary reference for Sancho is Sancho Panza, Don Quixote's squire. He also writes in her book is niche and flights of fancy. Joe may seem more Quixote than a Sancho, though she and the squire have a degree of earthiness in common, but the, the specific context that it's used in there is sort of as 19th century uh, New England slang for a misbehaving little boy, which is interesting. It's interesting that it's applied to Joe, who's, who's only been <laughs> described as a, as a Sancho. Since she was born, had been considered a Sancho ever since she was born, which would suggest this kind of boyishness, kind of like inherent inborn in Joe's nature. It's interesting because it's, yeah, it's foiled with being sort of like the angel child mm-hmm. being called the Sancho. So even without the context, you infer it's some sort of like, yes, don't be naughty. But, but the fact that they they are gendered is mm, really interesting. Yes. Yeah. Was the angel in the house ever a boy? No. So the angel in, in the house is a 19th century trope yes. for sort of like what the ideal wife or woman would look like oh, in Victorian literature. Okay. Pure and pious and self-sacrificing. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, in, in other works, um, like 19th century American literature, like Uncle right. Tom's Cabin, you've got little Eva, right? The, mm-hmm. the little angelic child child who sort of yes. um, has this self-sacrificing love. I've certainly read that. And I think you said also in this like recording <laughs> that like Beth is the angel of the house of little women. Yeah. Or closest that to that. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, let's get back to the Hummels and the giving yes. of the breakfast to the Hummels. Marmy says, my girls, will you give them your breakfast as a Christmas present? They were all unusually hungry, having waited nearly an hour. And for a minute, no one spoke. Only a minute for Joe exclaimed impetuously, I'm so glad you came before we began. So we get a bit of hesitation. But in the Gerwig movie, Beth says, is this when you tell us that father would want us to? Yeah, no, it's so interesting, like on that note too, right? Because the first Mm -hmm. chapter ended with the letter from father and then they all decide that they're going to now be better people. And then they get these books and they decide they're going to, this is them actualizing what it means to sort of um, be more noble is by reading. And I think it's really interesting that transition happens in the same paragraph. So like, like they're like, thanks for our books, Marmy. We've been reading them. Like we've been doing so great. And she's like, awesome. Will you give your breakfast away? Like immediately (laughs) after. So it's sort of like, 
theory and praxis. Um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I, I, I do like that sort of interjection because immediately, right, they're already packing it up basically yes, yes. by the time she asks. Well, it's, it's a good thing that they take the breakfast of the Hummels because one of those Hummel children grew up to be Kurt Hummel. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do you have any specific insight into the uh, German immigrant of it all, the Hummel of it all? I do um, not. And I was going to ask okay. you if you knew anything about that. Part of the Hummel's role in the novel, like the class reading is very obvious. Yes. And I think it's interesting yeah. to think about, you know, the Lawrences and then the Marches <laughs> and then the Hummel's and all sort of neighbors of a kind. But yeah, like the fact that they're speaking in German and we're told that the girls are trying to understand their funny broken English. That's a quote <laughs> as they're sort of hanging out. Yeah, I, I didn't know what to make of that. I'm not so, so sure sort of what the immigration history of, of Concord is at this time. Yeah. So we're introduced to the class disparity of the little women in a big way. We understand from the first chapter that the marches are not well off. We know that we already know that their father has lost all their money and yet they still have a dollar each to purchase small Christmas gifts. They have a uh, housemaid, which is an interesting embellishment that I don't know quite what to make of. The Alcott's never had a housemaid, certainly. Like they, they, they could not afford that. But they are, you know, one level up on this rung that they can give their food away and be of service to the Hummels. And then the Lawrences are the obscenely rich people who live right next door and can give an even more extravagant meal. So, and in a way also doing a kind of charity to the marches. So in this chapter, we see them as both like beneficiaries of and givers of charity, which is interesting. And, and it tracks also with what we know of um, the real Abba May Alcott, who was the real life Marmy. When the Alcotts lived in Boston, she did refugee resettlement work, wow. just working with newly arrived immigrants, indigent people, poor people. And of course, the Alcotts were very active in anti-slavery and abolition efforts. They were close friends of John Brown and his family. One of their homes, uh, Wayside, was a stop on the Underground Railroad, actually. And Louisa May Alcott taught people escaping from slavery to read and write. So they were very, they were very, very involved in a lot of kind of what we would think of today as charitable work. Like Louisa May Alcott was even within her family was like an especially fervent abolitionist. I was reading in May Alcott's journal, Nathaniel Hawthorne sends over a copy of his latest book. It's dedicated to Franklin Pierce and Louisa May Alcott will not read it for that reason. And May Alcott is like, I thought it was good, but Lou didn't want to touch it. <laughs> she was like, she was like boycotted, blocked, reported. I'm not going to read this book. She cared a lot. In her fiction for adults, there's a lot of abolitionism in there. She actually, one of her better known short stories, I don't know if you've read it, My Contraband, is about a young man who's escaped from slavery. And it's sort of told from the perspective of a nurse who encounters him in a Civil War hospital. So she was very outspoken about this, but not a lot of it makes it into Little Women, which makes me wonder if she might have preferred to write The Hummels as a, an African-American family. I mean, it is a really interesting little bit. And I guess we don't mm -hmm. get too much even within the narrative, we get very little of sort of their backstory besides sort of the them being them calling the marches angels. So yeah, we know that they have a shared religious background and also a ton of kids. Mm -hmm. That's kind of about all we get. They return home, they give presents to Mrs. March. And then from there on, we are into the problematic play that got little women banned from Sunday school libraries. And I cannot stress enough, banned from Sunday school libraries for like decades at a time. And Sunday school libraries as an institution, kind of just as today, like 
school libraries are a major, major buyer of books. And there are whole like arms of publishing houses that are like dedicated to just like hand selling books to school libraries and public libraries. So Sunday school libraries were based in churches and had kind of that same sway. And Little Women was kept out of Sunday school libraries and lost out on that profit stream for decades. Not just because of this play, but because Louisa May Alcott refused her editor's request that she update it or change it or make it less objectionable to Christians, which is interesting. This is also, I'll note, this is the only editorial you must do this or can you edit this or censor this that she ever got from her editor. It's so interesting yes. because to me, the narrative of the actual play itself, the fact that they are doing this sort of play than any of the specific details that make it what it is. So it's interesting that she was so... <laughs> committed to keeping the details as they were. Like that seems interesting to me because for example, sometimes when you've got like a frame narrative where they're doing a play within the larger novel, you can kind of put right. the narrative of the play <laughs> in conversation with the larger novel in ways that allow you to sort of understand the themes of both more deeply. I don't necessarily think that's happening here. No, they're just having fun. Uh, so, <laughs> and so it's just interesting yeah. that this was the play she wanted represented. Well, I mean, in real life, uh, Louise May Alcott and her sisters put on these plays and it was an op it was a special opportunity for Lou to portray male characters and mm. to dress in more masculine clothing. At Orchard House, you can see they have on display the russet leather boots that Lou handmade to portray these male characters. Like it was a real gender euphoria moment for her I think it's notable sorry that in this play you know Joe is a is a girl with three sisters and like there are a ton of male roles in this play yeah. like yeah Joe isn't even the only one who plays a man like no I I yeah. took a note of that too and um, but Joe's the only <laughs> one that we're told again and again like Joe got to play these male yes. parts to her yes. heart's content quote and the others yes. are doing it but it's not worthy of notice versus no no every time Joe's on on stage I feel such tenderness the boots which are <laughs> Joe's chief treasures and appeared on all occasions yes. and so every time one of Joe's characters is described as doing something they came on wearing this and that and the boots of course and then the boots we surface at the end um sort of in the first discussion of Lori which I don't want to jump the gun on that but yes but the thread of the boots throughout was, I don't know, it was just so moving to me. I know, yeah, she loves those boots. And so in the book, they are a pair of russet leather boots given her by a friend who knew a lady who knew an actor. So these are a male actor's boots that she mm -hmm. has inherited. And in real life, they were handmade by Lou. Like, <laughs> so that's, that's a fun twist. And then there's, she also has a slashed doublet once used by an artist for some picture, which I don't, that can't be referring to a moving picture because that hasn't been invented yet. Maybe for someone like posing for a portrait. So, you know, it's, it's a real opportunity to like put on, male clothing in this case inherited from men and portrayed she has she's a villain she's also portraying rodrigo in gorgeous array with plumed cape red cloak chestnut love locks a guitar and the boots of course i'm not sure whether the principal objection of the christian union for the sunday school libraries was the fact that joe is playing a male romantic lead who is you know serenading a woman so I'm not sure if that was the principal thing, if it was one factor, or to be fair to the Christian Union, we get a witch, we get mention of murder, cups of wine, someone in the play is stabbing himself, there are cabalistic signs on the witch's cloak, mentions of potions, curses, and charms. And now we all know, even to this day, Christian parents, mine included, are like dead serious about like banning Harry Potter. <laughs> There's like a non-zero chance that they were just really upset about the presence of witchcraft. I, and I mean, you know, like there is like a mention of someone stabbing himself, which is, you know, that, that's a little out there even for like children's fiction, even today. So it's, it's unclear what factor exactly there's just there's a lot 
going on. There's a lot of moving parts. And Lou Alcott was like, I am not changing anything. I don't care how much money this this makes me selling to the Sunday school libraries. I'm not going to do it. Of the didactic parts of like the, the moral <laughs> sections of this, like in some ways you think yes. that's like the target audience <laughs> of many right. of the other cues right. in the novel, right? Um, mm-hmm. Like the sort of, this is us following our biblical lessons and you can too, right. readers right. at home. Complicating that or pressuring that with sort of the the, the, the individuality of, of the characters and- Oh, absolutely, yes. I think that's something that runs throughout <laughs> the novel. The sort of, there's like a line on the first page where they're, they're already sort of commiserating, like we should be able to like make our small sacrifices yeah. and do it gladly, but I can't. <laughs> yes. um, and that yeah. sort of tension for all the characters throughout, I guess, like, mm-hmm. I don't know, you can almost see that in her, or it, yeah, in the authorial struggle as well, right? Like, oh, um, absolutely, God, like yeah. We, we should be able to encourage people to do these lessons, but also the passion <laughs> and excitement and fun yeah. of doing a witch play, right? Like, yeah, yeah, a witch play where like I get to play multiple different male parts and like pretend, you know, to be in love with a with a woman, like. And Joe is just like so obviously feeling herself, like in <laughs> in the play like just in the middle joe starts bowing like as someone who's sort of used to getting all of this like adoring attention i I'm, uh, the gruff tones of hugo's voice with an occasional shout when his feelings overcame him were very impressive and the audience applauded the moment he paused for breath bowing with the air of one accustomed to public praise um i love that just it's this is I another just love that. like <laughs> exactly just sort of like yeah. reveling in this moment to sort of be giving this like gruff speech and then the second mm-hmm. that he pauses the audience is going and yeah. he's feeling yeah. it yeah and because I mean it's notable not so much in this chapter but in the first chapter like Meg gives Joe a lecture about how she, now that she's 15 she's going to be a young lady and she has to stop being so boyish and Joe is like no absolutely not I will not I will not do it and you know, at the end of that chapter, Joe, you know, they get the letter from from their dad and Joe says, well, I'll try to be what he calls me, a little woman. And then <laughs> five seconds later, she's in costume being a boy on the stage. I'm glad you brought up that tension. I, if, if you could sum up little women in like one word, I think it might be tension. This is what struck me reading it for the first time as an adult after the Gerwig movie is like there's this constant tension between like that very pious Christian impulse and like this generally more radical impulse. And obviously like this constant tug of Joe toward I think what I would certainly think of in modern day terms as trans identity also that like that word and that concept did not exist at the time although there were certainly like people living as the gender not of their birth at the time but it's that tension that just fascinates me and the way that the book even today is like I know that there was a modern day evangelical Christian like film adaptation a few years back Mm -hmm. With Lucas Grabeel, our friend Lucas Grabeel. No way! <laughs> yeah, he's Lori. No! He's Lori! <laughs> Which, <No>. wow. <laughs> um, deep cut, for those of you who don't know, Ryan from High School Musical. That was a very queer-coded character, so I find it interesting that he's now playing Lori. This book was given to me by my older brother's girlfriend at the time, who was in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And it was like very much given to me as like a, this is good for you as a young woman to read and like learn how to be good and godly, which is very interesting to me now because there, again, that tension is so obvious even to like, you know, to the point where like your mom was like, you need to like read and learn from Joe, who is like yeah. a tough tomboy who loves to write and takes no BS. Those it's, things exist so simultaneously. It's wild. Yeah. Yeah. And I think mm-hmm. like maybe this is a, a product of me reading too much metafiction since I work sort of <laughs> on that yeah. time period, but 
but sort of, yeah, the, the way that I was reading it was sort of, yeah, like the structural constraints of the genres Alcott is taking up to write in, pressured by sort of like, yeah, the individual spirits of the characters. And you can, I can almost like hear them straining against like the forms of the novel in the same yes. way that like, like there's like the bit at the end of like Ulysses by James Joyce, right? Where Molly Bloom is like, James, let me up out of this thing. Like, yeah. let me out of this. And you can so almost sure. hear the character saying that, like, let me out of the confines of this novel. Yes. But that's just one way of representing other kinds of, I guess, structural expectations placed on them. Do we have anything more to say about the play? There's some really fun structural stuff going on in the play. It's almost like it's sort yeah. of being narratively staged. So we're sort of yes. um, almost like watching <laughs> what's happening as well. But then there are the sort of like funny moments. I yes. mean, there's the moments where, um, as mm -hmm. we said before, the boots are mentioned. And so we know that's yes, Joe yes. playing the character, even though we're not told. <laughs> yes. There's, as I said, the fun part where the tower collapses mm -hmm. and they're buried under it and then they have to sort of regroup and it's interesting yes. sort of the way that disrupts <laughs> the narrative dis descriptions of the play and then when joe's character mm -hmm. dies it was a truly thrilling scene though some persons might have thought that the sudden tumbling down of a quantity of long red hair rather marred the effect of the villain's death she's she's breaking the fourth wall a little bit here I, it's I really love that. fun it's very and clever. I think obviously, there's been so much written on sort of like gender and performance and performance as different ways to sort of like enact mm -hmm. things that would otherwise be socially unacceptable, but you can for hear sure. It's yeah. Veiled yeah. by performance. And so it's, mm -hmm. I guess it's interesting the way that the layers of mediation are happening here. Yeah. Like we know that um, transitioning was not, it, it wasn't a possibility for Lou specifically, although there were, we, we do know that there were people who uh, around the time of the Civil War were born as women, went to war as men and served in the Civil War as men, and then just continued living as men post-war. There were people we would think of as trans who transitioned around this time, and Lou never went that far, but loved performance, loved putting on plays throughout her whole life, would do these kind of amateur theatrical productions, and more often than not would play men and play boys, which is fat, which suggests to me that it was an opportunity to sort of enact gender in that way. And I think it obviously serves that same purpose for Joe. Also, I also think it really allows just Joe to really boss people around. With a wonderful presence of mind, Don Pedro, the cruel sire, rushed in, dragged his daughter out with a hasty aside. Don't laugh. Like Joe is just a, a real like control freak. And I love that. I love that. For Joe. I love that it, so much. It really comes through in the play. Like what's also interesting is that Joe simultaneously plays the romantic hero and the evil villain. Okay, if I were a boy, what kind of boy would I be? What kind of man would I be? And isn't this fun to get to be a villain for a little bit, which is very, it's, it's cute. It's cute. One other, wait, one other yeah. thing that I wanted to ask you about. So, so before the play happens, we're told that Joe's able to play the male parts. Yes. It's implied because no gentlemen were admitted. And so yeah. that was one thing that I think is really interesting, the way that, and you see this throughout the novel, the way that it being mm. this sort of women-only space offers mm -hmm, up mm -hmm. the space for Joe to sort of take on the masculine role, yeah. which I think is really interesting, yeah. right? Like, for mm -hmm. example, because the father's gone, we're told now in his absence, Joe can be the man of the house. Yes, so, yeah. It's interesting the way that it's sort of predicated on like the, the absence of, we're told, gentlemen that permits yeah. Joe to take on those roles. I mean, you get these these really almost rigidly gendered spaces, which obviously mm -hmm. become blurred of like the Lawrence household, which is the grandfather and Laurie yeah. and John Brooke, the sisters, and then mm -hmm. Marmee and Hannah. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's just interesting the way that it's utopian women-only space yeah. that allows then for there to be more freedom and gender expression. Yes. I, I wasn't sure what to make of that. To bring in the boots thing again, the fact yes. that we're told Joe can play male parts because no gentlemen were admitted. But at the mm -hmm. end, Joe is the one who says, well, maybe Laurie can come to our plays and maybe he can even start acting. I would almost imagine that to be sort of like stepping on the toes of what Joe's role in the plays are. 
And as she's saying this, she's looking at her boots, the boots of her sort of gender performance. Anyway, throwing all of this at you, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yes. I want to get into the Lori of it all. So I want, I want to kick the Lori of it all a little bit down the field, but I do want right. to talk about what you said about how this like all female space is a place where Joe can enact the role of, like you said, the man of the house. That, that's an explicit line from chapter one is that yes. in father's absence, Joe is the man of the house. In the Gerwig movie, she adds the line, um, when they get the letter from the dad, Joe is saying, oh, don't I wish I could go to the Civil War? And Beth says, no, no, we can't lose our only brother. Yes. (laughs) Um, Again, in Lou's life, I cannot express enough, like her family would refer to her as a brother and a son. And when one of her sisters died and left behind surviving children, um, Lou wrote in her diary, I must be a father to these children. Like it was kind of just understood that Lou was taking on that more male role. Lou is a male caught childhood trauma that I want to bring in here because I think it's relevant. You know about Fruitlands, right? Bronson Alcott's utopian experiment. Oh my God. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so he, at one point during uh, Louise May Alcott's childhood, took his entire young family out to the middle of nowhere in Massachusetts to found a vegan commune. There were, yeah, no meat, no animal products, no animals used in farm labor, <laughs> no leather, no wool, and and no cotton as well because uh, they were fervently anti-slavery. So they were basically subsisting on like root vegetables and no seasoning. <laughs> <laughs> and it was not it did not last long it lasted only a few months they like packed it in before the winter hit but at one point while the commune was flailing and Bronson looking for ways to make it work he visited a shaker community which was segregated by gender so he returned and said we have to do this we have to segregate our community by gender and the important thing to keep in mind is that at that point the community was Bronson Alcott one other guy Bronson's wife and his four daughters <laughs> So like, he was basically like, I don't want to see my wife or my four daughters anymore. And at that point, that turned into, because he made this suggestion at all, Abba, the mother, was like, I am fed up with this. I'm not doing this anymore. You have to choose very real talk initiated of a separation in the family. Like, Mm -hmm. was Abba going to separate from Bronson and take the kids or were they going to stay together? It was very, it was very upsetting and traumatizing, obviously, for, you know, any kid faced with the prospect of their parents separating. But like, that has stuck with me so much because even at this very young age, Lou was writing stuff in her diary, like, I don't care much for girls things. People think I'm queer, like queer in the sense, like the modern sense of queer but like people think I'm queer and wild I don't care much for girls things she already had like a nascent sense of gender I'll say dysphoria because it's my podcast and I can do what I want but like so how traumatizing it must have been for like the father to propose like I don't want to see you anymore because you are a girl I mean I think that that's part of why I had such a difficult time with sort of being a girl growing up is that I've Mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. know most of my closest friends were boys most of my closest you know all my cousins Mm -hmm. were boys and Mm-hmm. And I was told, you know, at various points throughout, like men in my men in my life, like once yeah. you get to be a teenager, um, mm-hmm. you're going to change because that's when girls become X, Y, Z. And then you're, we're not going to be able to hang out in this way anymore. And that was so painful for me. And, and that was terrifying for me. And yeah. so, yeah, as you're speaking, like I, I'm, I'm very moved by that. And obviously yeah. experiences yeah. differ, but, but something about that resonates. Absolutely. So that must have been like a foundational experience for Lou was just being confronted with that very, very early. And like, to to your point just now, we also know that Lou loved being friends with boys. When she was asked to write Little Women, she says, I don't like girls. (laughs) 
<laughs> and I never knew many except my sisters. Getting even into her adult relationships, what she really longed for was friendship with men. Among the many reasons she never got married was because she really just sought out friendship with men. And I think it, we don't we don't know too much about why she didn't want to marry Joe to Lori, but she did say, I won't do it. I won't marry Joe to Lori to please anyone. And at that point, I, I want to also make clear, like her editor never asked. Mm-hmm. In the Gerwig movie, it's kind of like her editor comes down from on high. It's like she has to be married by the end of the book. In real life, she was getting letter after letter from girls asking her to marry Joe to Lori. And when she says, I won't do it to please anyone, she's talking about like 10-year-old girls who are writing into her, right? So I feel like we've kind of gotten away from the question you asked, which was like, why, why are these single gender spaces a place where Joe can kind of enact boyhood part of it also just has to be we're also talking about childhood right Mm -hmm. and that childhood is a safer place for joe to express these boyish impulses than adulthood is a very common feminist critique of little women is that you know joe kind of does succumb at the end to this heteronormative married life she finds a middle path you know when she's in effect proposing to bear she finds a way to be like look these are my conditions like i have to have a life outside the house i have to be able to write it's very much on her terms and in the sequels we find that the vision of the marriage takes on an even more utopian like almost like polyamorous (laughs) she lives on a big compound with Lori and amy which (laughs) they have their own children they're also raising a bunch of other children through their school she was like if I'm gonna have to marry this character off like I'm gonna give her opportunities to kind of not be such a stereotypical wife part of the reason why Joe is able to enact boyhood so freely in these spaces is because she's still seen as a child right at this point Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. she isn't quite a young lady yet and so she gets to explore and she gets she especially gets to experience her friendship with Lori at a time before there's too much pressure to like get into the courtship element of that you know I think it's something that she really cherishes while she has it yeah I'm also thinking I guess about the 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 fluidity or flexibility Mm -hmm. that comes with sort of these non-normative family structures like Mm -hmm. of the single gendered spaces so yes yes um like the fact that it Mm -hmm. is sort of this household of women and Hannah who's Mm -hmm. described as I guess part of the family even though she's um, a servant, they say, mm-hmm. and and then yeah, with like this household of like Mr. Lawrence and Lori, and then yeah. sort of the tutor thinking about these family units as having to sort of yeah, or or having space to sort of exist differently than mm-hmm. maybe the kind of nuclear families you would see represented yeah. in sort of didactic. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Not talking about the elephant in the room, which is the Civil War and like the absence of men yeah. from most families, right? Right. And historically, wartime is an opportunity for women to step into roles occupied by men and kind mm-hmm. of take that on. And I'm thinking more of like World War II. Every young man went off to war. And so young women had to take the, these roles in manufacturing and industry, which had historically been closed off to them, right? And you know, something similar takes place here in that when Mr. March goes away to the Civil War, Joe becomes the man of the house, right? Right. And, and, and Meg and Joe are both yes. working outside of the home to yeah. help keep the family afloat mm-hmm, and leaving mm-hmm. school for it. And yeah. 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 It's also it's also worth noting, I think, like Bronson Alcott had some like very radical ideas about education. That was kind of his his bag. He really thought that women should be educated equally to men and gave his his daughters, because he only had daughters, tremendous opportunities for education both within and outside of the home, which I mean is easy when you're like best friends with Ralph Waldo Emerson. <laughs> they were part of this incredible community of thinkers, philosophers. They had opportunities to go to all kinds of lectures, to see people speak, to read all kinds of books. Lou was receiving like a very advanced education for any girl of that time. So 
some of this is Bronson Alcott's kind of progressive ethic. And I think some of it is, you know, the nature of what women have to do in wartime to make do. And some of it is childhood. And some of it is Louisa May Alcott being like a proto-trans man. It's, there's a lot. There's a lot of moving parts. And with that, I want to get into kind of the last moving part of this chapter, which is the introduction at the very end of Lori, who I... I'm going to like, I mean, this is going to be another long running theme of the podcast. I said before, Lori is the fifth March sister. I think that just as Joe presents a mirror for people born female who are dealing with gender dysphoria, I think Lori is a very meaningful parallel in that like Lori is also stifled by boyhood and manhood and by the all male, as you said, um, environment that he's growing up in. And he finds real like pleasure and room to grow in joining this uh, all-female family. And so let's get into that. Let's get into the lore of it all. So he's introduced right at the end here. We get some lovely exposition from one of the girls who has been to see the play. And she says, my mother knows old Mr. Lawrence, but says he's very proud and don't like to mix with his neighbors. He keeps his grandson shut up when he isn't riding or walking with his tutor and makes him study dreadful hard. We invited him to our party, but he didn't come. Mother says he's very nice, though he never speaks to us girls. So we know that there's a concerted effort on Grandpa Lawrence's part to keep Lori away from the family. So there's some gender reasons for that. There's also some what I'll call ethnic reasons for that. We learn later on that Lori is described as having dark brown skin, curly black hair, and big black eyes. Explanation given in the book is that Lori's mother was an Italian woman. Grandpa Lawrence didn't approve of that marriage and consciously keeps Lori from, like Lori's mother was a, an Italian musician actually. And he discourages Lori from playing the piano lest he end up like his mother. So there's some like pretty outright anti-Italian bigotry. And that, and that was of the time. There's a really excellent book by Daniel Oakprint called The Guarded Gate, which goes into the history of anti-immigration activism in the United States. And from that book, I learned that a lot of it was driven by the Boston Brahmins who were white Anglo-Saxon Protestants who were determined to specifically keep um, Irish and Italian immigrants out. So yeah anti-Italian bigotry ran deep, like in this specific milieu that we're talking about here, like this, these New England wasps, it's left unspoken, but I think that is a big part of why Lori can't go outside and not be friends with any other children. And it's sad. It's sad, right? So that's one reason. But I think also part of it is it's significant for me that it's like, specifically, I don't want him to be like his mother, mm-hmm. which is like, I don't want him to be feminine in any way. Mm-hmm. And by being friends with all of the March sisters, Lori gets some freedom. And it's interesting yes. that we first, like, we don't mm-hmm. meet Lori right away first, right? Yes. It's just sort of this, this hearsay <laughs> we get about his grandfather and then about him. Um, and mm-hmm. he's not even, I mean, he's not yeah. even really named here, right? He's just that no, no. boy. That um, boy, the Lawrence boy. The Lawrence <laughs> boy, um, a capital <laughs> fellow. <laughs> um, he looks like a little gentleman. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we, know, we learned that Joe has spoken to Lori once before. Our cat mm-hmm. ran away once and he brought her back. I love Lori. And we talked over the fence and we're getting on capitally all about cricket and so on when he saw Meg coming and walked off. So that's already interesting. It's like, yeah, that Joe was able to bond with Lori before anyone else. And Joe says, I mean to know him someday for he needs fun. I'm sure he does. And he brought the flowers himself. Oh, and Marmy says, I should have asked him in if I had been sure what was going on upstairs. He looked so wistful as he went away hearing the frolic and evidently having none of his own. I, I don't, yeah. I don't quite buy that. Like Marmy didn't know the play was going on. <laughs> 
I know. Um, I guess I guess it's sort of like mm-hmm. it's interesting that this first description of them sort of talking to each other over the fence is like yes, an interesting yeah. image mm-hmm. and his sort of like wistful like being kept out of the house but sort of like kind yeah. of, you can almost imagine him sort of like peeking over her shoulder trying to see like where all this yeah. frolic is coming from mm-hmm. there's no gentleman admitted to the play we already know that but that's not named here as like a factor in keeping him out Although, and this is interesting for me, the line about he looked so wistful as he went away hearing the frolic. And Joe says, it's a mercy you didn't let him in, mother, laughed Joe, looking at her boots. Yeah. But we'll have another place sometime that he can see. Okay, does Joe not want Laurie to see her as a man? Like that's- With the boots? I know. That's why I didn't didn't know. But then she says, maybe he'll help act. Wouldn't that be jolly? But we don't know. We don't know. I mean, Joe never really reads as shamefaced to me or anything. No, no. He's laughing, looking at the boots. She's (laughs) going back to your point about wanting (laughs) boyfriends. Yeah. There's there's something going on there, right? And sort of like, (laughs) it's interesting, like his wistfulness about being left out of the play and then her sort of like (laughs) fond memory of this fun talk about cricket, the glimpses of one another and as sort yeah. of offering something that that they want and are drawn to. Mm-hmm. Him maybe offering her something in, similar that her boots offer, which is like access to a particular yes. kind of experience. So Greta Gerwig had her third eye open because she said, Joe and Lori find one another before they've committed to a gender. And I think that is a really interesting take on it. I think we see in this, even in this little scene, kind of a yearning in both of them for some kind of middle gender, some kind of middle ground where they're not quite so strictly pushed into male or female roles. There's also a line in the Greta Gerwig movie that is like, blink and you'll miss it. It's right after Lori brings Meg back after the New Year's party. Marmy says, you'll have to come and act some time, although you'll have to fight Joe for the male roles or play a girl. And that's not in the books anywhere. That's just Greta Gerwig's galaxy brain right there. She understands, like she understands that what Laurie wants, what Laurie's missing in a very real sense is, you know, his his mom is dead, guys. His mom is dead. And his grandpa is pretty determined to stamp out any kind of her influence in his life, right? Which is very sad. So some of this is just maybe wanting to be around other women. Maybe some of it is wanting to be a woman. I think we see that all here. You know, the arrival of like Lori with flowers being like, can I come in? Can I like be part of the all girl party? Like, it's just, it's very sweet. Lori is next chapter. I'm excited to get into that. The real introduction of Lori is next chapter. Yes. Like, Lori is a March sister in this house. We love Lori. Okay. Is there anything else? I don't know how long we've been recording. I should maybe have been keeping track, but is there anything else we want to get into before we uh, wrap up? Because we are, you know, we are at the end of the chapter here. So maybe one thing like mm-hmm. interesting parallel. So the way that mm-hmm. the absence of gentle from the space is what allows Joe to take on the boy roles in the play. And then here, Marmy says she has no objection to Laurie coming in because he looks like a little gentleman. Like the <laughs> idea of his sort of like ability to sort of present in mm. the ways of what gentlemen should be like gets him access right, to this right. in some way. Anyway, I'm not sure what to make of it, but it, I, yeah. I think that's interesting when Joe's like, I'd like to be friends. And Marmy says, well, I like his manners and he looks like a little gentleman. So I have no objection to your knowing him. <laughs> if a proper opportunity comes. Yes. she says so there is yes. that cap there's some understanding here of what's keeping them apart but it will be broken down in the next chapter mm-hmm. which is as we as we continue our march toward the trans explanation for all of this but <laughs> <laughs> well thank you so much for joining me steph i am much enriched by your knowledge of literature and i'm so glad that you could join me this has been very fun it's been very exciting yeah thank you so much for for inviting me to chat this was so much fun so where do you want to be found where can people find you if they want to get in touch social media that kind of stuff sure yeah um 
I'm not on tons of things, but I guess I'm yes. on Twitter um, <laughs> at Steph I Red, S T E P H I R E D. You can find me there occasionally. And I can be found online at twitter.com slash Peytonology. That's really the only social media I'm on. Um, my book, Both Sides Now, is available wherever fine books are sold. And we will catch you next week on another installment of Joe's Boys. <laughs>